I could have listened to that for uh, three or four more times. You don't know this, but uh, he was playing hurt when he was uh, just playing out because he separated his shoulder over the weekend. So that was a sacrifice. That was a sacrifice of praise, right? Where when he put his strap on, I thought, "How's he going to do that?" But he went for it. Well, it's good to see a uh, full house this morning, and. I'm ready to preach uh, the Word of God to you, and I'm going to preach a resurrection sermon from Galatians, which is not often done, and it's not just because I'm in the flow of Galatians in my exposition, but because there's a couple very real crucifixion and resurrection themes that just prop up out of the text that we find ourselves in, and I believe that as we walk through this, you'll see the relevance of what it means to tie together the narrative story of Jesus not being in the tomb but raised to life, having died on Friday, raised on Sunday. What does that mean for you spiritually? How do you practically take that home with you and live that out? This is the teaching of being united in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. What is union in Christ's death? When Christ 2,000 years ago died, you were united to that death, buried, you're united in that burial, raised, you're united in Christ's resurrection. What does that practically mean? Good text for us to begin with. I began here on Good Friday. There were a couple of hundred of you that came To that, some of this will be reviewed, but it's just ramp and runway to where I'm really headed. Listen as I read Romans 6 uh, to get us started. Romans 6, verses 1 through 7. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized or immersed into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Take hold of that phrase for a second. Just don't let that one just flit off your mind. As Christ was raised... And then skip to the end of verse 4. We too, we also might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from Sin. Paul's talking to Romans here. Our text in Galatians is where he's talking to Gentile Christians there. Basically a very similar metropolitan Gentile-influenced crowd. Kind of a Greco-Roman-influenced crowd. They needed to 
be settled on what had happened in Jerusalem many miles away from where they were and the significance of that. Just like you as you sit here 2,000 years later in Anchorage, Alaska. Yes, that's where we are. You need to, you need to go back in your mind's eye and say 2,000 years ago when Jesus was pinned to a cross, my old man was pinned there also. What does that mean? What does it mean when Jesus rose on the third day? I'm to walk in newness of life. Galatians applies it this way. What does practical holiness look like? What does a resurrection holiness, newness of life holiness look like? We've got a war going on inside of us. We've been learning about the flesh and the spirit are at in odd, are at odds with each other inside of us. There will be no peace negotiation. This will be a battle of sin versus the new man all the way until we are glorified with Christ. Holiness is the naturalness of the spiritually risen man, but sin is the naturalness of the spiritually dead man. It's a quote from J.I. Packer. We want the naturalness of holiness to be our reputation, our experience, our desire, don't we? You want to be holy, watching your opposing directions cease and watching your spiritual life go into ascension. You want this deadly feud to die. There should be observable victory in your life if these things are true about you. And Paul uses in Galatians 5 some shorthand for what I just read in Romans chapter 6. Let me just go there. Look at verse 24. Verse 24. We're going to start at the end and work backwards into the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 24, though, says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is a verse that's unique to all of the crucifixion references in all of the New Testament. There are four crucifixion references in the New Testament that apply to the believer. There are four of them. This is one of the four. Three of the other, three out of the four talk about what God did to us and for us and with us when he united us in his death, burial, and resurrection. We read one of them in Romans 6. We are united in that way. In Galatians 6, it talks about how we are crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to us. This is God's work in our lives. But verse 24 is actually talking about when you got saved, you repented of your sins, and repentance is crucifying the flesh and its passions. This is part of your connectedness to the cross. It's where you say, Jesus, you died for me. You entered into my life. I'm recognizing that, and I am declaring war against my sin and saying, God, forgive me for the sins that I have committed, and they are now nailed to a cross, even though they are dying in my life. They're not all the way dead. They're nailed there and dying as I grow in grace by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the picture here that Paul is painting. He's optimistic in that he is saying, 
This old man is crucified. We might want to try to pull him down sometimes and live like the old man before we were saved. But Paul's reminding Christians, you crucified that old man. Because Jesus died, he died for your sins. You repented of that. And it's as if it's nailed to a cross in your life. Romans says it this way. You are no longer enslaved to your sins. The dominion of sin is no longer over you, though that old man is still alive. That's crucifixion language. It's the dynamic of making a choice not to try to resuscitate your old man and not only doing that, doing step two, and that's what leads us into our text this morning. You, you not only recognize yourself as dead and your old man is crucified as a Christian. When you want to grow, you got to do something else. You have to be led by the Holy Spirit. You've got to walk by the Spirit. And you've got to, verse 25, it's said three times in this text, you've got to keep in step with the Spirit. You not only have to Reckon yourself as dead, as your old man is pinned up to a cross. You also have to walk, be led by, and keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Got to do both in your mind and in your heart. How do you walk by the Spirit? It's an inner yieldedness. It's a decision to do this. Clear the ground of your life by killing your sin, by repenting of your sin and saying, I'm not going to go back to the world. I'm not going to go back to who I used to be. That's not who I am. I'm clearing the rocks. I'm clearing the weeds. I'm clearing the land. I'm fertilizing the ground with myself yielded to the Holy Spirit. I'm watering the soil and I'm abiding in God, abiding in Christ. John 15, I'm abiding in the vine. I'm a branch. And then guess what you do? Nothing. But watch and see if fruit will grow in your life. And as a believer, it will. It will. Growth happens. That's why this picture is so appropriate. You can't work these fruits up. I'm sorry, let me start over. This fruit up, these attributes of one fruit, we're going to clarify that. But you can't work these things up in your life, verse 22 and verse 23. You can't do these fruits. These are not works of the law. These are not disciplines. These are not habit patterns. These are not external character qualities. This is the product and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. This is what makes you look holy to the onlooker. It's not that you're making yourself look holy. You're not doing something. You're actually doing nothing except abiding in Christ, yielding to Christ, saying, God, Holy Spirit, help me work in this, work this in my life. You're repenting of sins. You're clearing the ground. You're clearing the rocks. You're clearing the stones. You're clearing the sticks. You're fertilizing the ground with the word of God. You're watering the ground with a heart that's soft. And you're saying, God, do this work. Fruit is so interesting. 
It will happen in your Christian life. It will come in your experience, but it'll come in God's timing and in his way. And I can't resist but to share this. It's, it's, it's something that takes a long, long time to see happen, doesn't it? The spiritual fruit of God in our lives is like trying to watch that. It's like watching real fruit happen, right? You, you, we have a couple apple trees in our backyard, and we've watched these scrawny little things grow. And, and we, you, know, you pray for it, and you, you name the tree, and you, you water the tree, and you want apples to come. But you know, the, you, they, they take a long time. And then blossoms happen, and then little green ones happen. And then you pull the green one off, and you're like, look, it's an apple. Let's eat it. And it tastes bitter and it's kind of nasty, but it's your apple, right? And then year after year, you watch and you hope it grows. And then kids pull the apples off prematurely and you guard your heart about that. (laughs) But you have to be patient and watch this work of grace happen in your life. And you know what this is? This is the resurrection power of God in your life. This is what Paul meant when he said we fellowship in sufferings and we live by the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection is the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that lives in you. That produces fruit over a long period of time. Romans 6, 4, again, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might Walk, same word here as Galatians, walk in newness of life. Well, let's learn about the fruit and try to see what God is doing in our lives as we are yielded to the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is, stop there, fruit is one word, singular which is a comprehensive summary word of all of the different fruits that are listed. But love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those are attributes of one fruit. What do I mean by this? I mean that your holiness is a collective symmetry. It's not, we're not talking about a single spiritual gift in your life. You shouldn't confuse that with this. You shouldn't confuse natural giftedness with these attributes or these virtues. These virtues hold together. You can't say that you are walking in the Holy Spirit if you're a very loving person, but a very dour person. If you're a very patient person, but you're a mean person. If you're a very gentle person, but you're a very angry person, that doesn't work that way. You, all of the different kaleidoscope of the fruit of the Spirit will be working your life at a varying degree collectively together. That's what Paul is saying. It's multiple characteristics, but one fruit that's inextricably related to the other. They're not manifested in isolation And they are nine manifestations of the Spirit that really are the character of Christ. It would be like if Christ was just one of these attributes and not another. 
That's, that's a contradiction of Christ, right? If you have the Spirit of Christ in you, then the Spirit of Christ is manifesting himself through you in this fruit that are these things. So believers live this cluster of nine Christian graces that portray a beautiful symmetry. We're not called upon to summon inner strength to make this happen in our lives. It's fruit that happens. Cluster of nine Christian graces portray a believer's attitude toward God. It's, it's a Godward attitude, and it's also a manward attitude, and it's also a selfward attitude. The fruit of the Spirit really moves in three different directions. It moves upward, it moves outward, and it moves inward. These things are happening in three different directions, and they're always produced by God's power. Fruit is used 106 times in the Old Testament and used as a word picture 70 times in the New Testament. And spiritual life or spiritual growth, to my knowledge, is never used in terms of a vegetable. Praise God, right? Vegetables, I'm sorry, I don't care. The palate changes, it grows, it gets older. Vegetables are gross. They are. I'm just going to say it. I, I, I eat them sometimes and, you know, you get geeked up and you put sugary, you know, things on top to make it taste good. But God knew what he was talking about. Fruit is sweet and refreshing. And that's what the, the fruit is picturing here. It's what God does. We are the branches. Jesus Christ is the vine and God the Father is pictured in John 15 as the vine dresser. And we are called to abide in the vine. And as we abide in the vine, the expectation is that we'll bear, according to John 15, 8, much fruit and so prove to be Christ's disciples. Fruit in the Old Testament and the New Testament was a spiritual product of God's power. Hosea 14, 8 talks about this. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Hebrews thirteen fifteen speaks of inner worship being fruit. The fruit of lips, uh, the fruit of believers coming to Christ is another picture in the New Testament. So even with our fallen sinful nature, believers possessing a new nature's nature will inevitably manifest varying degrees of fruit. It's not fruit that we can tack on like fruit that's fallen to the ground that we want to duct tape up and you know make happen. This is what God does. And I've already mentioned this. Christian growth is gradual. Number two, Christian growth like this is inevitable. It's going to happen. And Christian growth like this is not to be confused with natural gifts especially natural gifts. I mean, there are a lot of people who are just good people, good-hearted, self-sacrificial people, where they're doing things by common grace, but that is not the grace of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And we don't need to confuse one for the other. And we also don't need to underestimate the power of growth. Growth, when you see it over a long period of time, can give you a lot of hope. Because when you find yourself in a circumstance where you're like, man... The way I just responded was a little better than I would have two years ago. I would have lost it, you know, but this time I just half lost it, right? That's, that's how we evaluate ourselves. Don't underestimate the power of God in that. There's a story about a man who was 
buried under a marble slab and an acorn slipped into his casket before the marble was placed over top and it grew from the inside of the casket. It had been unnoticed before, but eventually it split open the marble lab. The life did as it grew up. So the, so the question is, which is more powerful, the marble slab or the seed? When you know how things grow, you understand that it's a bad bet to bet on marble. We see this in, if you go to highly vegetative places. Where I'm from in Virginia, you have a lot of trees on either side of the freeways, and you see vines just working, and they're just taking trees down and doing all kinds of things. The power of growth and life is the picture here. The graces of Christianity in our lives. What are they? Well, there's nine of them. We're going to walk through them now. First one is love. Love. What is love? It's agape. It's self-sacrificial here. It's not to be confused with eros or phileo. Eros being um, romantic love. Phileo being friendship love. This is agape love. Self-sacrificial love. It's the mark of the new life in Christ. It's an attribute that in one sense encompasses all the rest of the attributes. If you get love right, and God's working love in your life, the other attributes are going to follow suit. They're going to happen. The love of Christ has been poured in your life, Romans 5, 5, so you shouldn't be surprised that it's part of your new life. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. God is titled for this self-sacrificial love. Paul says that the aim of our mission and ministry and charge is love. 1 Timothy 1, 5. Love is defined as giving oneself for others. This is a quote. So they are encouraged and strengthened to give themselves more fully to God. Love is selflessness. And you know the difference when you are self-consumed versus when you are consumed with others. There's joy there. There's peace there, right? I mean, the the fruit of the Spirit just comes out of that shift of disposition. When you move from an inward self-absorption to an outward self-sacrificial love, your life opens up because your life now is not about you. It's about others. That's Galatians 5.14. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. What? You shall... Love, your neighbor is yourself. Love. You love right, stuff is falling into place. It's a personal choice. It supersedes pleasant emotions and good, peaceful, easy, good feelings. And it's a willingness to give self-sacrificially. John 3.16, we could quote it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loving the world is the inner Trinitarian fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit having a meeting together in harmony according to God's Trinitarian will for the Father to send the Son. The Son didn't say, oh man, I got to go down there. No, the Son was in face-to-face. This is 1 John 2, 1. Proston theon, face-to-face, locked Eye-to-eye attention with the Father in full agreement to go and to release the riches of heaven from himself and take on the form of a servant, being willing to be a slave. Portrayed in the humility of Christ washing the feet, leading into the humility of an execution that was gruesome for the 
harshest and worst and basest of criminals. Jesus died in humility out of a love covenant that was made in the Trinity for him to self, be self-sacrificial. John fifteen thirteen. greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's death on the cross is the ultimate example of this love. And our love to others flows this way, but it shouldn't be disconnected with the life of Christ as well in his heart for people as he walked this earth, welcoming the children, putting up with disciples who wouldn't listen, being mocked by the crowds, not responding in kind. Jesus wept with, you'll remember, Mary over her brother Lazarus who had died Why did Jesus weep over Lazarus' death? He was put in the tomb already. They were were accusing Jesus of being slack and not getting there on time. Remember that story? If you'd come on time, then my brother would not be dead. But Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew he stalled on purpose because Lazarus had to die so he could manifest his resurrection power, saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. So he stalled on purpose. So why is he crying? Is he faking it? No. Jesus wept because of the sin's effects on people he loved. The sins of our cursed world, tragedy, suffering, death, hurt. Jesus entered into that emotion because he loved people. He loved people personally. And we're commanded to love in that way. We're commanded to walk in this love, to have this love, to see people as people made in the image of God who have intrinsic value. This kind of love is the opposite of fear. It's the opposite of self-protection. It's the opposite of abuse. It's the opposite of a counterfeit, selfish affection where you're attracted to treat people well because of how they make you feel about yourself. That's not love. That's not biblical, sacrificial love. Love is a grace that goes into eternity But it's something that's practical now. It's where you feed the hungry. It's where you clothe the naked. You nurse sick people back to health. You liberate slaves. You delight in people who are, in the world's eyes, unlovable or unlovely. You go to those who are the fatherless. You help the widow. That's love. Love is practical, and it's so rich and rare in this subject. Only God could author this kind of love. He's the author of it. Next one is joy. Joy, kara, is uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, Romans 14, 17. It, the joy of the Holy Spirit cannot be attributed to human ability. Philippians is the epistle of joy, and there's a lot of conversation about joy in Philippians, and Paul is writing about joy as he's shackled in prison, not knowing if he's going to get out or not. I guess he assumed he may. He'd been helped a bit by people in the body of Christ. I think Epaphroditus came and helped him. There are people who gave him a love offering, but his joyful concern was for the Christians in Philippi to be unified let, let unity reign, and that's going to fill your heart with joy and my heart with joy. 
Joy in Jesus and joy by the Holy Spirit rejoices in all kinds of circumstances. It rejoices in hard circumstances. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, we're supposed to do that. Trusting in God, he's working all things together from the, for the good. Joy is always mingled, though, in life with sorrow. The joy of a Christian is a deep, resounding, humble knowledge where you know by conviction that God is sovereign over your life. He knows everything that's happening and why, and he's working it all out in your life, and it's really hard. And you're like with Jesus, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You feel the burdens of this world, but at the same time, there's joy. It's found 70 times in the New Testament, and it's connecting with spiritual realities of a deep sense of well-rooted knowledge that's, that you're abiding in Christ It's initiated at conversion. Something that I, as a new believer, saw in my life. When I was an unbeliever, my brother, who I've mentioned before, my older brother who's a pastor, he became a Christian. We were both raised in Southern Baptist uh, Church. I love the Southern Baptist denomination, but our our church was kind of an easy believism church where we would go forward. At the altar call, on the third stanza of Just As I Am, get it right with God, the pastor would come over, you'd sign a card and you get baptized and you're all good. Well, we weren't good. We weren't good at all. And um, my brother wasn't good before me. And uh, I was witnessing to my brother as an unbeliever going, how dare you rebel in the way you're rebelling? Then he became a Christian. And he got sold out for Jesus and tacked a um, personalized license plate on the back of his black Mustang that said, Why Burn? And then around the rim of it, it says, Jesus Saves. And it was all this, you know, there's a Believer on Board sign, I Love Jesus pins and Christian t-shirts and blue cassette tapes from groups I had never heard of, right? That was my brother. And, And the one distinctive about him from before and after was his joy, I guess he preached here recently. He's the same guy that he was then, kind of just a goober, but I love him. But he, he loves Christ, and there's joy there. And when I became a Christian, that was the distinctive difference in my life. I was happy, and it was a self-sustaining happiness. That's what Paul is talking about in Philippians 4. It's the one place where you could confuse self-sufficiency. It's really your sufficiency is in Christ and the Holy Spirit, but... Once you're good, the Holy Spirit is working in your life. There is joy to be had there. You can deny it. You can try to uncrucify the old man in your life and live like you used to live and and deny yourself joy. But there is joy in your life. Jesus put it this way. On the night he was going to be taken to the cross, he was comforting his disciples in John 16, verse 21 and 22. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish, the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. No one will take it from you. It's like trying to take a newborn baby from the arms of a mother. She's gone through all this and she forgets all about it. She looks into the eyes of her baby. You have that joy in your arms and no one can take it from you if you will but access the resurrection life, walking in the newness 
of life. Jesus did this. Jesus, the founder, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, Hebrews 12, 2. He went to the cross in utter abject sadness and sorrowing and sweating great drops of blood. And at the same time, all of that was mingled with joy. That's Christianity. Well, thirdly, peace. Peace. Well, I don't want to skip this. The opposite of joy is hopelessness and despair, counterfeit elation, experiencing blessings instead of the blesser. It's being on a roller coaster ride. You don't want to be um, party to mood swings. You want to be like Christ who is imp- imperturbable. He was the imperturbable Christ who had joy, and that's the joy of the regenerate man and woman. If you have love, you have joy. If you have joy, then you have peace. Let's look at peace. Peace is arene. It's uh, often joined with the theme of joy in the New Testament. It's the spirit, Spirit's work where Christians know Christ has brought peace to them through the blood of the cross. Listen to this quote. This is from someone who's going to address us at live feed on Friday um, interactively. By the way, all of you need to come back for that. Plan to come. Leave your checkbook at home. I don't even care if you give. Just come to the event because we, we need to crowd the room so that we can enjoy our time together and, and make, make a good event around Christian disciple making. We want people to be able to preach the word of God, right? In Alaska. So come to that. Well, this is a quote from him, from John MacArthur. If joy speaks of the exhilaration of heart that comes from being right with God, then peace refers to tranquility of mind that comes from your saving relationship. The verb here is talking about being bound together where everything is in place as it ought to be. Now, the world will say, hey, I've got it all together, right? I've got it all together. I've got, you know, all my assets are in place and everything is put together and I'm good. Well, because I read my Bible, I know that that's not what's going on inside most of us most of the time. But when you walk by the Holy Spirit, there is a togetherness that takes place in your heart, rooted and founded on the cross of Christ, where you know your sins are forgiven, but rooted and founded on selflessness and the ability to care about others and the ability to walk in the Holy Spirit and have God minister to you. That's the peace of God, which surpasses, you know that word in Philippians? It surpasses your understanding. It guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Peace isn't getting somewhere psychologically. Peace is trusting God, trusting his promises, resting in his word, and then God is producing this fruit in your life where you say, man, I am a lot more peaceful than I used to be. It's like where your body heals, where you have a broken ankle or a a hurt shoulder or something like that. And, you know, it doesn't work for a while, but you you take care of it and you set the conditions and you go, oh, I've got a little bit of range of motion back. That's how fruit is working. You set the conditions, you say, man, this is working in my life. Paul did it. He, He said, the things you've heard and seen in me, practice these things, Philippians 4, 9, and the God of peace will be with you. Jesus is our calm. He calmed the storm. He stood in the bow of the boat, said, hush, be still, and he is that to us. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He must have gone to Rome or read about this. I thought this was fascinating. 
talked about visiting a room filled with the busts of emperors, and you see them on Wikipedia when you look people up, I, if you do, like Nero or whoever, their face. Well, he saw these, and he, it said, he said, they look like a collection of prize fighters and murderers without any countenance trace of joy. Their brutal passions and cruel thoughts deprived the lords of Rome, any chance of joy, you will look in vain for moral excellence among Caesars, lacking this thing of beauty. They missed joy. Now, the poor, hunted Christians, you read of them the inscriptions left by them during that time in the catacombs. So the tunnels where they escaped persecution sometimes. These are so calm and peaceful that you say instinctively, a joyous people gathered here, and those who have most have been most eminent in service and suffering for Christ's sake have been a triumphant spirit, dauntless because they were supported by inner joy. Calm courage made them the wonder of the age. This is the peace of God. This is where you're not trusting yourself, but you're trusting God. You're not bound up in anxiety and worry, you're founded in peace. Fake peace is being indifferent and apathetic, not caring at all, trying to just figure out the world's ways. God's peace is supernatural. Number four, patience. Patience. This is a macrothumia. It's tolerance. It's long-suffering when injuries take place, when injuries are afflicted in your life. It's a calm, I like this, it's a calm willingness to accept situations that are irritating and painful. It's facing trouble without blowing up or hitting out. It's the opposite of resentment. The counterfeit to this is cynicism. It's being a cynic. It's a lack of care about things that you think are too small to care about. You're impatient with them. You have no time. God is slow to anger. He calls us to be slow to anger. Remember the scene in 2 Peter 3, 9, where it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's all in the context of him talking about Noah's flood and about our world and how the world's going to be not consumed with water this time, but fire. And a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day, but God doesn't want you to perish in that fire, and he's exercising patience towards you. I want all of you to hear, men, women, boys, and girls, listen up. He's being patient towards you and wants you to be his child. When you are his child, you demonstrate patience. Paul said to Timothy, he was the foremost of sinners, and God had exercised patience with him. We're going to be tried every hour, every day, and God gives us patience to endure it. Number five, kindness. Kindness is a word for being charitable or kind. It's a New Testament word um, that is in particular related over and over again in the New Testament to the kindness of God who saved you. You know that kind of phrase in the New Testament? When the kindness of God appeared Titus chapter 3, kindness. It's where God was personally kind to you. It's generosity. And you're never more like God than when you're kind like this, imitating Christ's generosity. 
Kindness is not weakness. It's not being taken advantage of. It's giving freely. It's where Jesus said to the children, do not hinder them, but come up to me. The Lord's servant is commanded in 2 Timothy 2.24 not to be quarrelsome, but patient when wrong. And this patience is, it's the idea of, again, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's being kind to the accuser. Kindness is the ability to serve others in vulnerability. It's a readiness to help. It's where your security is in the word. If you're envious, if you're filled with jealousy and covetousness, if you're looking at what people have done to you or what you think they've done to you or what they have and you wish that they have, if you are wishing them not to have what they have, then you're probably not kind. It's manipulative. It's feeling you are good enough for others or for God. It's a self-focus. Well, number six, goodness. Goodness cannot be distinguished very much from kindness. It's the spirit of God that strengthens us to live lives of moral beauty and decency. It's an excellence. Paul helped uh, he defined this. He said in Romans 5, 7, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. A Christian can be morally upright with high moral standards and might even give his life for a friend. But it's a goodness that's not just the ultimate sacrifice that we're talking about. We need to think about the ultimate sacrifice that was given for us. We need to think if we would be willing to lay our lives down for people in general or our family members. But general goodness is a common trait where you are self-sacrificial for friends. And people who are good likely have self-sacrificial friends. David said, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Galatians 6.10 says it best. So then we, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith, just being good. Charles Spurgeon said this, I love it. He said, there is not any holiness of which you boast that compares to goodness that other people can see and admire. You say, I don't like to witness, I don't like to open up awkward conversations that are theological with people in evangelism, and I understand that. You need to be ready to speak the good news to people and say Jesus saves. But more importantly, we need to be good. Not in a behavior sense, but in a fruit-bearing sense. Just goodness. And people will see that. And that's the integrity where someone begins to say, you know what? That person is the same on the inside as he is on the outside. Same on the inside as she is on the outside. That's not a phony. That's not a hypocrite. Jesus is real. Well, seven, faithfulness. This comes from the word pistis, which is where we get the word faith. Titus 2.10 talks about showing good faith. When you're faithful, you're loyal. You're somebody that can be trustworthy and counted on to fulfill responsibilities. It's loyal trustworthiness. When Jesus came, he emptied himself and humbled himself and came here to this earth and died on the cross and was buried and rose again. When he was standing there with his disciples and the Shekinah glory swept down in Acts chapter 1 and took him up into the sky, the angels who were standing there with the disciples, they said in just the same way you've watched him go into heaven, he will return. 
That's faithfulness. That's what should mark our lives. Jesus was faithful to come, faithful to die, faithful to rise, and he'll be faithful to return. We should be faithful in that same way. Jesus will also return to bring judgment. He'll be faithful to keep that promise too. And when he comes on the white horse with a two-edged sword, he's going to be bannered under the title faithful and true. The counterfeit to this is to be loyal but not truthful. A lot of times people will, will feign loyalty with some sort of performance-orientedness where, hey, I'm there for you, I'm doing, I'll always be there for you, but they'll not speak the truth to that person. You know what real faithfulness is in a friendship? It's where you'll do things for people, but then when you see things in their lives, you're willing to point it out. You didn't, reckon, you didn't think you'd get that on resurrection morning, right? But anyway, we, we, that's Christian living. That's faithfulness. Faithful are the wounds of a what? A friend. Number eight, gentleness. Gentleness is how do we reprove sin in believers. Galatians 6.1, we're going to talk about that later. But gently restoring people. There's also a gentleness with unbelievers that we need to have. Gently correcting them. 2 Timothy 225 for for perhaps god will grant repentance if we're gentle Uh, gentleness is never being forceful or harsh Uh, if you're that way it's not the spirit's work gentleness is also meekness jesus was gentle he was tough and strong and he was tender moses in the old testament was also called meek god in the old testament calls himself meek Meekness and gentleness comes from a transformed heart where you're willing to be submissive. You're willing to be teachable. You are entreatable. You are rebukable, if I can make that word up. You have to actively pursue gentleness for Timothy 6.11. You wear the garment of a slave. Holiness is gentleness. It's not pushing to the front of the line. It's not easily provoked. It's not quick-tempered. It's being gentle. Gentleness is not something that is common in our world. We have very brusque sound bites that come across in media today, right? On the right and on the left. Very strong, abrasive leadership. When that is laid next to, in conjunction with a Christian church that is being strong in truth, but speaking it in gentleness, that stands out. To a watching world, when you're not easily provoked, when you're, humili- when you're willing to be humiliated and be lost in self-forgetfulness, that's gentleness. It's the opposite of being superior or self-absorbed. Finally, our last mark of the fruit of the Spirit or attribute or virtue is self-control. Self-control is a- it was when you're able to restrain yourself. Unlike being dominated by the desires of the flesh, there's restraint it's God's control in our lives. It's Jesus Christ when he was here and he was trying to be, when, when Satan was trying to trick him and dupe him, when the Pharisees were trying to trick him and dupe him into believing something wrong or saying something wrong or doing something wrong, he always was under the control of the Holy Spirit following the will of his heavenly Father. Somebody said it, familiarity with Christ leads us to be like him. It's our passions under control. It's the ability to pursue the important over the urgent. I've heard it said, your crisis is not my emergency, right? You can use that. Anyway, but it's prioritizing 
what God wants you to do according to his will, that is self-control. Counterfeit to that is counterfeit willpower that's based in pride, where people, instead of being under the control of the Holy Spirit and in self-control, are desperate for control, desperate for power. You say, well, does that just happen in large companies? No, no. When people have to be controlling everything, controlling people's wills, trying to manipulate circumstances, that's the opposite of spiritual fruit that is self-control, where you're being moved along by the Holy Spirit. Well, verse 23 ends with this, against such things there is no law. What that means simply is this. Unbelievers don't make laws against stuff like this. Even the world, when they see this, says, wow, we don't want to counter this. These are oftentimes, even in the secular world, prized virtues that people will see. The world may consider some of these things as weakness, but they can't escape recognizing that they're never harmful. Again, Verse 24, we've crucified the flesh. Don't pull the flesh back down into your life. Don't follow the old man. Follow the fruit of the Spirit, verses 22 and 23. Verse 25, live by the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Don't become conceited. Don't turn outwardly provoking one another, envying one another. Don't be self-absorbed. Be absorbed by the Holy Spirit. Then you won't fulfill the works of the flesh, but you'll see spiritual fruit taking place in your life. Listen, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's he's conquered sin and death forever. It's happened. Whether I'm saying that on Resurrection Sunday or if I'm preaching it in my living room on Monday morning, Jesus is risen from the dead. It's a fact. Now we need to live in light of that. The same power that raised Jesus is in your life as a believer. And you need to walk in submission and yieldedness and in delight and in joy and in power. That's the power of the resurrection. If you don't know Jesus, you've heard the gospel Believe the gospel and taste and see that God is good and enjoy the power of God in your life.